0: Yeah. So, uh, would you mind um, sharing with us a little bit of how you came to Final Fantasy VI and uh, how you were thinking about it in connection with seven, Since that's, it looks like that's what you were writing notes about here.
1: Yeah. So, um, thanks for having me, Wes, and I'm I'm happy to be here. And I think I hear William making some contributions in the background there, and that's always good to hear. He'll soon be out thinking all of us um oh and especially as we we get older and he enters his prime um but i first came to final fantasy 6 from final fantasy 7 and final fantasy 8. i got to the final fantasy game late in my young career i i was um i was uh in eighth grade and i got final fantasy 7 and final fantasy 8 and tony hawk pro skater for that matter um and a playstation that year and if, if i can remember correctly eighth grade would have been just about 1999 or so and i think final fantasy 7 had come and come out in 1997 and uh final fantasy 6 had come out in 1994 but for the super nes which i didn't have one of so i first played final fantasy 7 VII and eight and i loved them and they were the first real JRPGs I never played. And then eventually when um, when uh, Sony started coming out with the uh, two-disc um, um, SNES Final Fantasies on CD-ROM, converted to CD-ROM, yeah. then I had a chance to get, um, I think, um, I, I forget whether it was four and five that came in one, and then six and another and another. Um, but I had both of those. Yeah. I think it was five and six, and then four and another, but I can't I can't recall. I could look that up.
0: It was four and um, Chrono Trigger, I think, and then five and six.
1: Okay, that that makes sense. Four and Chrono Trigger from well, and you know, Chrono Trigger being from right around the same time as Final Fantasy six, and um and uh, Final Fantasy seven makes perfect uh, sense. But um, I um I decided finally that I wanted to play through Final Fantasy six and finish it because I had this very bad habit. as a young person of playing a game for a little while while it was a new hit thing and then just sort of leaving it to the wayside like a young Goethe with his writing but a young uh, just a non-writer with his video game playing (laughs) and um, and uh, a non-writer at that time I guess and um, but uh, but um, I, I did finally have a chance to play it and while I played it I listened to your podcast uh, Game Cool Books, I think it was called at that particular time. Maybe Video Game Academy, actually. The early stages of Video Game Academy, actually. Yeah. And um, and uh, I started making some connections and uh, possibly understanding uh, or at least observing some phenomena of how, um, uh, how a series or how a science or how an art uh, progresses by steps. Rather than large leaps forward, um, not uh, not necessarily going by paradigm shifts as Thomas Kuhn talks about in scientific revolutions. And so, uh, part of my reason for wanting to talk about this was that um, seeing similarities between Final Fantasy VI and Final Fantasy VII helps me to see how any endeavor could potentially iterate. And um, is also in in some ways. Um, similar to the work that I do on scholarly basis now, looking at influences in, on Dante's work, in particular, medieval Arabic and Hebrew influences. There tends to be a there is a tendency in Dante's scholar uh, studies to see Dante as a supreme genius who just came up with these amazing things, sui generis and ex nihilo from nowhere. And that is a very uh, powerful way to see a person, but um, you know, to be scholarly is to make sure whether that's correct or not. And there's a lot of interesting work going to see what steps he's taken or or rather what sources he did see and what steps he took to add to those rather than just creating something from nothing. And so my original perception of Final Fantasy VII, not having played Final Fantasy VI or any of the games from before, was very much like um, one of those older perceptions of Dante. Um, And so now that I've played a little more, by no means I am I a video game scholar, just an amateur, and very much an amateur because I, I am a lover of these great stories that, uh, like with you, I think you, you're on record saying these, these helped get me interested in even deeper and more complicated stories, and, um, and in some ways ha- taught me how to read in a hypertextual, intertextual way. Um, and so that's my extremely, uh, that's the briefest way I could answer your question last
0: awesome. um <laughs> so you found some time between your like dante readings and all of his sources to play this pretty recently right it was within the last year or two i think uh so this is going to be yeah so i uh, you know, I
1: Yeah, yeah, I I think it should be. It's funny because when I was listening to you, I could tell that COVID was first starting because you and uh, Ben were talking about sort of the world of ruin and the world ending and talking about the world ending. And so there's sort of a meta-textual element there or hyper-realistic element present. And it was interesting to revisit that. And also, of course, the Omicron cases are spiking at this moment and University of San Diego um in university of california san diego um uh, i believe is doing online classes starting next semester with online classes for the first two weeks and so who knows whether this is the perfect time to return to the world of ruin in final fantasy six uh precisely because uh uh who knows what is to come yeah. and so um lots lots of darkness in the future um not a crossover from one uh, science fiction fantasy uh, 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 title to another. Um,
0: yeah, so. you know, it, it seems like the uh, the intertextual thing is very much alive in the Final Fantasy series. Uh, and yeah, particularly when you look at some of the games that are right next to each other, you can see some interesting things, I would say. Um, so you and I, I mean, it should be said, we talked a long time ago now about Final Fantasy VII and spent a good long time talking about that game. Um, I, I think that uh, all of what we said there probably still holds up. I mean, it wasn't uh, that different of a world that we were in at that point. Um, but if we were gonna sort of turn to six, could you start with maybe what struck you as being most different about it before we see some of the more uh, similar and, and go into the more of the comparison of the two?
1: That's an interesting question. There, there are a lot of differences about it um, that immediately pop into my head. The, um, the, the old SNES sort of two-dimensional sprite style being a big one, um, and a big differentiating uh a factor is that, um, you know, so much work went into Final Fantasy VII being put on a CD and becoming a PlayStation exclusive, and uh, Square Soft at that time, the American division Square, that then became Square Enix. Um, uh, putting investing so much in making Final Fantasy VII uh, groundbreaking, and I th- and I think it was Hironobo Sakaguchi who really gave his team so much freedom to 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 be innovative and to go beyond their roles. And so Final Fantasy VII is 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 totally different from Final Fantasy VI in terms of its uh, mimetic representation. Yeah. Um uh it, it, it is totally adapted to this new art form. It has these incredible cinematics, um, which were game-changing. And in fact, I, I think one of the big changes was that um um uh, uh, Nobu the the musical director, the composer, uh who did so much of this beautiful music for the Final Fantasy series, he uh he was um tasked with or challenged with supposedly this information I'm getting from um Um, either resonant arc or final fantasy union i think final fantasy union they do good scholarly work but uh he was tasked with making the game more cinematic and not repeating any music anywhere necessarily and you know it's a huge game and so i would say that that cinematic aspect of the game really comes through in seven and i'd say maybe even too much in eight even in the fight scenes with these giant gf sequences um right you know and um but um, that's what, it, 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 I guess that's not the deepest possible answer I could give, but that's, that's possibly because the more essential, uh, the more essential qualities of the games are, are, are similar in my mind. Yeah. Um. But, but the artistic representation and the, and, and what is happening around them being made, I think those, I think those are very dynamic differences. But uh, I mean, I'd love to hear what you have to say on that too, because that's a, uh, that's a question I'm totally unprepared for, Sorry. totally unexpected.
0: <laughs> well, you sent me a couple mm-hmm. pages of the, the connection. So I thought we should at least give some to the other side there, but uh, but no, I'd agree. I'd agree the impression, uh, the visual impression in particular but also the, the music um, and all of the ways in which Seven did sort of make this impact because it, it felt like a, a new kind of spectacle uh, that we hadn't seen before. Um, that's that's what stands out to me as well. And uh, I think I played seven first um, and then went back and played six later, like you on, on PlayStation. Um, and so that's another difference, I guess, is just uh, in terms of their reception, right? Uh, and that is somehow arising out of all the elements that go into the game, but also where people were at the time and and how people were ready or not ready for this, this thing. Um, i think that six and seven together make an interesting sort of transition away from the earlier games in the series too um that they um i think the first thing you wrote down as far as the aesthetics they both have this kind of steampunk uh look to them and um and i where whereas that was always sort of present it was maybe not um as prevalent in earlier games um where in, in Six, you know, you start out in the the uh, village where the steam is rising and uh, over Marsh. the snow, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you're in the, the mines. And then, of course, Seven, you're in this enormous um, dystopian city of Midgard. And, um, but yeah, I, I wonder about the, um, the way that that um, fits in with this uh, more cinematic approach. Like, in what way... Um, as six and seven are moving into something that's uh, a little bit more um, large scale, and um, you know something that's going to be recognizably uh, epic and awesome, um, why do they why do they go that route? Why do they decide to um, foreground technology uh, and, and this particular like steampunk uh, affect of it?
1: You know, that's an interesting question. And um, just to jump back to something you said at first, I thought you were going to ask about the effect of playing these games non-chronologically. And um, so I was at first prepared to answer that question because I thought that was really interesting because that is how a lot of people read too and read um, sort of classics, so-called, right? And something we talked about with Final Fantasy VII is that something useful about the game, even if it does not stand up to say the title of secondary or primary literary, Epic. It um, part of its value, certainly not all of it, because there's quite a bit of aesthetic delight that comes from it. Comes from the fact that it leads one back towards stories that might have more depth and complexity. And so I think a lot about, like, say, uh, uh, how Final Fantasy VI and 7 stand apart together, but one often only gets the uh, the second part, which is actually the first part, in order to understand the first part, which is the second part itself. So I think about the Iliad and the Odyssey. Almost everybody in, in, say, America today who is going to be exposed to these books is going to be exposed, or these poems, is going to be exposed to the Odyssey first. It's shorter. It's, uh, it hits close to the home for people these days. It's more palatable. Um, and uh, and it, it, it's just, it's an easier book to teach. Um, and, um, but the Iliad came before it. And the Iliad, uh, uh, the narrative takes place before it as well, um, even, even if the Odyssey did come before the Iliad, which I, I think is unlikely. So I'm, I'm, I'm not a classic scholar, but that's not what I've seen. Um, and so often somebody would be led to read the Iliad because they were so attracted to the, the characters or the narrative style of the Odyssey. And they might want to understand, say, Odysseus from the Odyssey at a deeper level or see his Differences, and so um, one seems to read in this non-chronological fashion to understand what is present to one more, and um, that seems to do two things: a, increase aesthetic delight because you get to see what's actually truly artistic and new about a piece of work, and what is sort of derivative or developed from something else. Um, But also, there's there's a second aspect too that I'm losing my train of thought with that. There there was a second aspect. It, it does increase uh, aesthetic delight. Oh, yes, but it also literally, I was just reading um, uh, uh, Plato's Ion. It literally makes one a better judge of art and what is one in front of one because one doesn't just still have this single product, Final Fantasy VII, and one has never played another Final Fantasy, and so it's obviously de facto the best. It's like, well... Um, uh, uh, that might be one's impression without experience of that which is around it, but that's not necessarily, again, uh, a mark of a correct judgment or of a. a and so it, it, it means more to say the Final Fantasy VII is one's favorite game if one has played the other Final Fantasies, for example, um, and has the discernment necessary maybe to judge them a little bit and against each other than to just uh, think that Final Fantasy Sui Generis is the greatest possible thing, which which was. Uh, absolutely my uh my perception of it when i first played it it was almost like a religious phenomenon or like when one hears one's favorite song for the first time i just knew it was the best and so uh final fantasy 6 is in some cases instrumental um then to me uh looking at 7 which i know is not answering the actual question that you asked <laughs> but only highlighting a portion of the initial part but i i've, I've now I'm forgetting what the initial question was, but I, I do want to answer that as well. I just oh, I, it was a, it was just it's about, nice to be in this environment again.
0: It's great, yeah. It's about the uh, the steampunk look of everything um, and how that shapes the world. Yeah, in these couple of games. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, I it's hard for me to say because I uh, I know that steampunk obviously has taken off in sort of the graphic novel. Um, um, industry and also has a a strong representation in the visual and the cinematic arts too. Um, Anime in particular seems to be really uh, doing a lot with that, Um, uh, even I think Attack on Titan to some extent has that aesthetic as well as sort of a medieval one. I'm not as familiar with contemporary anime though, but when I had students, I would often see uh, images in their graphic novels that uh, looked of that sort. I would have to Study that more but um i don't know it, it to me if i were to make sort of a jungian connection to use a jungian uh, framework i might say that it to some extent represents their um square square's development team itself recognizing the development of um and of their own medium yeah. um their medium is so so protean uh not only is are they changing the story for each game and the plan of each story, but they're increasing the size of their team. They're adding new elements. They're now making for different consoles. They're now making for, for uh, technologies that don't necessarily exist, but need to exist. And if they do exist, they'll be successful. But if they don't exist, I'm talking about the CD here, uh, uh, it's going to, they're going to have wasted tons of time and resources, and that's going to be a big issue for them. And so um, I, I feel like what is part of the steampunk aesthetic aesthetic, besides sort of a weird Dickensian throwback to Victorian time, is, um, uh, which is not present, I think, in, um, in uh, Final Fantasy VI or 7, really, uh, they're, they're far more modern uh, feeling than 19th century, is, um, is sort of how magical time or how magical um, the world can be if technology is, is subjected to aesthetics. Yeah. Um, and, rather than sort of just pure efficiency, um, and, and the pure efficiency sort of model or sort of capitalist model uh, seems to be what is at issue. There's sort of a greed yeah. underlying things, whether it be a, a, a monarch or a monarch-like uh, business tycoon, um, and uh, they're they're purely exploitative with their um, with their um, their use of resources from the planet, and they even have sort of an exploitative relationship to um this so-called magic. Yeah. And uh and to some extent it feels sort of like a a Marxist uh hate of the or or a Marxist representation of the um not the hate so much as the um the exploitation of the laborer by the capitalist, uh sucking something valuable out of them for pure gain. Uh like how Kepka sucks basically the souls out of the ESPers. in the sky in order to become more powerful and that that was something uh i guess i'm connecting to something i might have more to say about even but uh that was something i was interested in uh the mechanics of the materia and the magitech and the magic in both of the worlds which which i do think actually does connect to the steampunk aesthetic because what is fueling the technologies in in these worlds happens to be some essential either life force of the planet or some essential life force of a sentient being Um, and, and so there's this, there's, there's a very heavy cost associated with it too, not only an environmental cost, um, in terms of the world itself being exploited and damaged and possibly killed, but also a a tremendous moral cost in, um, you know, uh, instrumentally murdering sentient beings like espers in Final Fantasy VI in order to turn them into these useful summon crystals, Mm -hmm. um. And uh, which I suppose is in some ways how I use Final Fantasy VI in order to understand Final Fantasy VII in an instrumental fashion. Far less uh, violent on the on on the scale of analogy, though I think I think.
0: <laughs> I, I think you're not doing a great violence to anything here by uh, picking it apart and talking about it. And um, yeah, like you say, it's all because we really enjoy these things. Um, and I, you know, I think a lot about how. I would approach like teaching these games you know and so you you know picking up on like the order how to approach them um i think is really interesting uh and it strikes me that your point about square sort of like inscribing in the game their awareness of changing technology that that's really really interesting um and the problem i see with trying to teach these games now is that they are quite dated, right? What was pretty spectacular and new uh, in the, you know, late 90s um, is now really retro and um, clunky looking. And uh, it's it's hard to kind of feel that same immediate connection with things that are old. And so I like your connection, you know, back to the Iliad and Odyssey, right? Um, if things are good enough, then... Age is no barrier to kind of engaging with them, um, but uh, I get—I mean, it might remain to be seen um, whether these games are going to stand the test of time like that. Um, and I think the connection between technology and magic also is kind of the, along the lines I was—I was really thinking about here, because it strikes me that that is really one of the main ways that the games are really similar, right? Is your party is uh, very customizable because you sort of just tack onto them whatever magic you want them to have. Um, And it has this kind of, um, yeah, instrumental quality, right? Like uh, the magic and the technology at a certain point begin to overlap or blend together um, in ways that are really interesting. Um, My big question about that other uh, series we talked about for a long time, our friend Sarah, uh, Harry Potter, right? Was like, what is magic? And I feel like, Harry Potter never really, really wants to get too into that question. Um, but I think it's a really important one. I think Jung would have thought it was a really important one, probably. Um, the um, The ways in which our society does and does not recognize um, you know, transcendent things or, or supernatural things is uh, super interesting. Um, uh, and I think these games are kind of interested squarely in that topic of what is magic right and how can we use it or should we use it um, or not Um, and I think as you look at the uh, the parties in the two games and then also like the villains like you were mentioning um, we see some pretty cool perspectives on that question start to emerge Um, so for for my part that's kind of where I I'm you know really fascinated by that, that newness and oldness of steampunk, right? Uh, and the way that classics are old and yet always contemporary with us um, uh, and the ways that yeah, we do or do not acknowledge magic uh, in, the, in the real world, right? Um, and I, I feel like of all the things in these two games um, that I always sort of wanted more of, uh, but I guess there is a limit to the technology, right? I always wanted more of a world to explore. Um, the world is pretty big. there's a lot of places to go and whatnot but, but it's not like you can go and explore the Esper world. you really just sort of see this one you know village there. Um, and the same goes for like um, the, uh, the the ways that um, Midgar is like this huge involved structure but then every other town you know and dungeon is really minuscule by comparison right So it's sort of that game seven that is like sets you up for this incredibly in-depth journey um but of course you can only get that by playing the uh the remake (laughs) they are very slowly (laughs) coming out with um chapter by chapter here so so yeah anyway um yeah did you want to talk more about like the uh the espers and the materia um or do you want to go to to kefka and sephiroth i feel like those are sort of the two big you know gnarly topics Those,
1: those are some excellent topics and not to be missed um, I just want to touch on what you just said, though, on the newness and testing and uh, standing the test of time. Yeah. So something, you know, in my sort of new role in life as budding scholar, something I did in preparation for this is I read a scholarship. In particular, I picked up this volume, *The Psychology of Final Fantasy*, edited by Anthony Bean, and I read a couple different articles in there. One on sound and repetition. Um, by William Gibbons and another collaborator. And just something very interesting that said about it is, um, and just to touch on music just for a moment, because I know that we're both very much moved by the music. And I know also um, it's um, uh, either the person from Resonant Arc or Final Fantasy Union, I think there are multiple people that work on both products, but um, uh, the one that does musical analysis said that he said, that his experience of music is uh, basically a metaphysical one. It's very poetic language that he used. And um, something that came out in this article that I had a chance to read um, by Gibbons, I guess I'm just looking at it right now. And so it goes on and on repetition in the game of Final Fantasy um, was that. In um, If you spend like just a few hours in the first town that you find yourself in, because of the looping nature of the music, you could end up listening um, to, <laughs> to um, one song something like 4,000 times. And, um, for, and, and so once you, one has heard something repeated so much, it, it does start to fade into the background. Um, and, but it also starts to sort of ingrain itself in one. And so it might actually literally be the case that because of, uh, because of the amount of time we spent playing these games and hearing these repetitive songs that they have become ingrained into us uh, at, at this point. Um, I, it's hard for me uh, to find exactly where it says that right now but um, I can't say that it is in that article. And um, I thought that was really interesting. But um, to answer the larger point, it is almost as if Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VI are standing the test of time because there is such abundant scholarship coming out on it. of People in musicology departments, psychology departments, counselors with um, MSWs, um, journalists, um, all sorts of people with uh, you know who have scholarly careers are writing scholarship or um, um, Final Fantasy. Not to mention the fact that in less scholarly circles, but uh, perhaps more informative and definitely far more popular um, venues like uh, places like YouTube with Resident Arc and Zygor Gaming and Final Fantasy Union and what you do too with Video Game Academy and also um, uh, what Corey Olson does. Um, just uh, well, he's sort of a myth right? Um, because it's sort of a it's sort of a university too. Um, and But um, there, there's more and more conversation rather than less and less about these games. And so I agree, when something is new, sort of like when one is a kid, the newness itself is of value. And um, it doesn't even necessarily matter what the quality of something is, or that matters much less, because newness has a premium put on it, whether it's new clothes, new music. And often uh, it seems to be the case that younger people are more affected by the new Whereas older, more discerning people tend to be more affected by uh, what they discern to be actually innovative or good or something like that. And so um, it looks like as, the, as these games are revealed for what they are, as their glamour of, of novelty fades from them, they, they, that there is something being added rather than subtracted from them. Um, and so I, 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 at least that seems to be the case at this moment, just in terms of how many people watch how many videos are being put out, and people can, and how many people can have professional careers putting out YouTube videos on these games, and how many people subscribe to them and watch their videos, and uh, the amount of scholarship too. <clears throat> on the other end, so it's uh, these games are in some ways more alive now than they even were, um, uh, then. And so uh, we'll, we'll see whether that continues to be the case, whether Genova continues to inhabit the minds of the many um, and uh, bring about reunion or uh, or whether or whether not. Um, and you know, it's interesting. that's like an evil integration as opposed to uh, uh, cloud's actual good uh, self-integration in that.' Just thinking about that. Magic, though, you wanted to touch on. I have so many answers to what I think ma- magic is. But I think two or three actual good ones. When we were talking about uh, Harry Potter, I thought that um, magic was um, sort of the body of received wisdom that could affect people by means of articulate sound. And um, <clears throat> I think you're the one who actually added the articulation bit to it, but that is essential. Um, interestingly, I've recently done some work on uh, medieval perceptions of usury, lending at interest. Or, or lending with hope of gain, which is prescribed in, in, several times in the Old Testament. Uh, once in Matthew in the New Testament, um, it's something like mutuum date nihil uh, though there's an alternative reading as desperantes, which actually a lot of people accept. But it means a lend, hoping for nothing in return. Um, but something interesting is that usury laws had to continue Continually uh, be uh, uh, um, redefined as market practices got more and more sophisticated. And so at some point, you have um, a very distrustful public of um, what these <laughs> sort of odd economist types are doing with these intellectual formulae by which they increase the amount of money that they have without actually physically working. And um, I think you can today see that. Same sort of prejudice. Um, I'm not myself an economist, but like people have a natural sort of distrust for people who know how to make money without uh, working for it constantly or something like that. There seem, at least in America, there even among non-protestants, there seems to be sort of a sort of protestant um, uh, sort of biblical "you should work by the sweat of your brow" sort of injunction about it. And so magic also seems to. The- be that which has invisible motive force, and so has people have to have faith about it if they don't know the mechanisms behind it. But it certainly works in invisible ways, um, and I, I think about that as just more general definition of what magic could be. Now uh, in Final Fantasy six VI and seven, it's <clears throat> it's a little bit different um, because one is literally sucking the juice out of a planet to make materia and then taking the materia and putting it on one's armor or or weapon, and then instrumentally using it as a weapon. And so is one even better than someone who's using it uh, for Mako, um, or or sucking the life stream out of uh, the planet, uh, or going the material stage, and then just turning it into Mako, which then powers people's homes, by the way. So uh, the Shinra Electric Company um you know they're evil to the protagonist perspectives who are terrorists um but um you know and they do upset the planet enough to i guess get um to generate um weapons and they do betray a guy who then tries to destroy the planet so not the best people but also doing some good too um and that's something i think that comes out in the remake when you hear the comments of the people in. in Mitgar talking, they're like, how "Are these terrible terrorists doing these things again?" And it's it's very very interesting. Uh, there's an article I haven't read yet on parasociality when there's an tyrant at the top and how people can be real friends and if they can be real friends at those times. And there's there's an aspect of that living under a hostile regime in in Mitgar, sort of like how one might expect it is in North Korea, or to you know, in terms of freedom of speech and speaking against one. Uh, and, and uh, yes, speaking against one's um, uh, uh, political regime uh, there, even China to this day, um, but also back in the Soviet Union and, of course, the Nazi Germany. Um, but magic in, in – uh, as horrifying as it is to think of magic as life or sucked out of the planet, it's even more horrifying to think of it sucked out of sentient beings as, as it is used in Final Fantasy VI, and to think that there are, and so I guess to segue all of this into um, talking about Kefka and Sephiroth is that something that I thought was so unique about Sephiroth besides his pure giftedness is this beautiful creature who's totally elegant and suave and has this amazing sword that is so absurd. Everything about him is absurd. His Nazi leather get up with cloak, is long silver hair, uh, which we learn in a later game, I takes an entire body of a bottle of shampoo and conditioner to clean. Uh, that's in one of the later iterations of Final Fantasy. And it is also just better than you, and he's taller than you are, he's stronger than you are, he's smarter than you are, and he's great. And he, And by the time he's some absurdly young age, he's a general, who has conquered another nation and so in his own nation's mythology he is a superhero and he really is like a superhero because like we talked about in final fantasy 7 when one goes into the flashback and fights against the dragon with him he literally takes no damage he's invincible in in cloud's mind he's uh uh he's just that much larger than life and but part of the reason for that is at first we is is that he has had these Jenova cells, and Mako infused into him in some way. And so he is, uh, he is a hybrid, and, and, and because of his mistaken perspective of where his, his, uh, his origin is, he actually goes crazy. And now, so something I found very interesting about that is that Kafka is very similar to him in terms of his aim and his representation. Uh, they both get represented as sort of angelic, seraphim-like characters with six wings near the end. Kafka, obviously, is a god. Is already a god and has to descend down to our level. Sephiroth so, uh, is almost a god at this point and and can sort of tele a uh, kinetically control um, a cloud and the party. It's unclear to me whether he even has to have the fight with them at the end or not, but he does. Um, and but Kafka is driven crazy by exposure to um, to um, this this fluid that is sucked out uh, forcefully from Aspers and then infused into select people, including Celis, I think also Tara, maybe, and uh, Kafka, but it drives kept the crazy. But um, what I'm really interested in is, why is Celeste, when she finds out about this, not herself div- driven crazy with uh, you and Ben talked about this a little, like what she says to Tara when she meets her, and she's like, "Oh, magic, lovely gift, isn't it?" And you really try to pull that apart and look at it in different ways. And you know, is that an ironic way of putting this, or or is that is she just being like sweet? But but it feels like Sephiroth thinks that he has been created in the same way as these monsters, and that drives him crazy. Selis knows that she has been created or made by a sentient being having its life force sucked out and then infused into her. And that does not drive her crazy. To my mind, that would be the far more horrifying thing to learn. And in some extent, I think that is kind of like why vegetarians, uh, moralist vegetarians become vegetarians, because that's you know what their relationship to eating meat is. And which is understandable, um, even though I'm not myself a vegetarian, um, but, uh, you know, so I, yeah, no, i just, I would really like to know your perspective on that, because that was something big I really wanted to talk about. So the nature of, uh, because these espers are another sentient being, they're like a magical, uh, semi-divine sort of genie being, and they, uh, and they have their own little world that you talked about. And, uh, in order for, uh, the world of balance to have magic in it, they have to take these aspers. uh, uh kill them in some way in order to drain them of their magic. And then it turns into a weird juice that we get to see a cinematic of on the CD-ROM version of the game. And they, they can then power the Magitek armor or uh, a Magitek knight, as it were, like Stellas or uh, Crazy Kefka.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoy the, um, because there's such a big uh, party that we end up getting in Final Fantasy 6, there's all these kind of interesting um, dynamics that play off of each other uh, within that, and and Kafka, I consider sort of this like anti-party member, right? He's of course completely alone, um, but in some way more powerful than everyone else put together. Um, and yeah, he he and Celis have this um, shared um, sort of origin, um, but then Celis and Tara have this shared purpose, right? Where they um, are both fighting back against the forces of, of whatever, like capitalist industrial domination and empire. And, um, and Kefka eventually sort of transcends all of that and is just really out to mess with things. And they're fighting back against him because he's destroying everyone that they care about. Um, and so I think there's a really important bit where Salas um, is despairing Uh, and is freaking out, but it's not about the thing you were describing, you know, sort of her identity, so much as it is her uh, loneliness, right, that she's becoming Kefka in that way, and she thinks that everyone else is gone, and that her father figure is dying or dead, Uh, and so she attempts to uh, destroy herself um, by jumping off the cliff, Um, and it's this really poignant moment where, um, you know, she survives, of course, and and she finds the evidence of um, at least one other person still surviving and the, the headband of Locke, right? And so she, um, the whole sort of second half of the game becomes this um, this journey to find all of the missing party members, uh, reunite them and then um, save the world from Kefka. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's that, for me, it's that um, combination of, uh, of purpose and companionship that Celis has that Kefka Lacks maybe is incapable of, um, but that makes him such a great villain, right? It makes him so interesting. Um, and he's a sort of insane, um, you know, al- alter ego uh, uh, of some of your party members in that way. Um, where, um, you know, Tara herself, uh, she's in some ways the other chief protagonist, I guess, um, who opens the first half of the game, where you're playing as her, but she's, you um, under the control of the empire, um, has lost her memories or her uh, will to fight, uh, fight back, um, and she only sort of gradually does understand who she is. That's sort of her arc. Um, where Forcellus, um, yeah, it just it doesn't ever uh, arise as a as a crucial problem. Um, her problem is instead, uh, you know, needing that purpose and that companionship. Um, so. I'm not sure if that's entirely satisfying, but that's kind of how I understand what the game is up to. Like, if we're carrying about that too much with our own party, we're, we're sort of on a different end of the story, right? We're sort of on another possible story, um, but not the one that the game is, like, more interested in us um, experiencing. Um, and that's the thing about these role-playing games, I guess, is, like, it goes back to that um, origin of, like, the game master and the uh, people playing at the table right the tabletop rpgs where there was a lot more sort of freedom to make things up and explore side things. Um, these computer games these video games have to you know of that era, at least they have to like really distill it down and, and sort of linearize the story for us um, in ways that, on the one hand dumb it down make it easier um, on the other almost like a book right you sort of. enter into dialogue with it and you can imagine other stories that populate um uh, around the edges Uh, but um i don't know it it seems like um at least one of the things that magic starts to symbolize also um in a lot of you know um, contemporary art and culture is is just that um force of like friendship and fellow feeling um uh, Harry Potter, you know, famously survives the most powerful violence because of the most powerful protective magic of um, his familial love, right? So like the, um, the power of friendship and love is sort of this cliche that uh, enters into a lot of these games but um, I think it's deployed pretty effectively uh, in Final Fantasy VI and seven and to an extent, so. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it's entirely satisfying, but that's yeah. kind of my take on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very similar to like sort of the um, uh, union distinction between eros and logos or uh, the principle of relating and the principle of discerning. And it seems as if the protagonist or the antagonist has an, uh, in, you know, sort of typical anti intellectualism has, an, has, a, has, a, has a, an overabundance of logos. Uh, Kefka is obviously a genius and strategist. Uh, willing to do whatever is required and is the most successful villain of all time in terms of achieving the ultimate goal of literally becoming a god who subjects the world to his own will and uh, his own ruinous will Um, and in some ways is uh has to die or be destroyed because his own vision because he wouldn't want to live with his own vision and so that i think is, is one way to read both him and Sephiroth and, and to the Harry Potter point, and also Lord of the Rings, Samwise and Frodo making it all the way to the ends of the earth together. You know that that uh, erotic bond. I, I I don't mean in the contemporary sense, but the bond of eros or relationship, friendship between uh, people. Ron and Hermione and Harry and Harry and his mom, like you mentioned, and Harry's mom and uh, Lily and um, and Snape. Um, Seems to be in some ways like the most powerful or the deep ancient magic right this like great magic greater than uh incantation can know and that that does seem to be what both sephiroth and um and uh lacked lack to some extent i i think neither of them would want what they achieve and i i've often thought about this i i think i mentioned many podcasts ago that i used to think a lot about heaven when i was young and I always got bothered by the concept because as a seven-year-old, my ideal heaven was just go play baseball every night. But the idea of always doing that nonstop in sort of a deterministic sort of way started to feel sort of like a slavery and sort of like what would be more defined as like a hell. Yeah. And so it was very scary um, to me. But to, I've also thought about like the notion of like, what would it be like to be the successful villain and to then destroy the world? um and it's like you would or to be the god that destroyed the world you would then what have to wait for the forces of evolution to create a foe worth fighting you again and and i think that is the answer and and so it's almost as if um uh and uh and uh i'm trying to say socrates Because have been reading all this plato and uh sephiroth once uh our principles of negation that need this antithesis in order for the ultimate battleground to exist, but ultimately they don't want to win that that battle. They just want to put being or existence to the ultimate struggle in order to prove its validity. It's all, it, it, And I don't know that this is Eros versus Logos necessarily, but ultimately it is the connection of the characters that uh, bring them together and give them the strength to overcome these foes. And And I think like you mentioned, in both Final Fantasy VI and VII, it is a full team affair. You have multiple teams rather than just one team that goes at the final boss. Um, and um, and and there's something special about that. It takes additional strategy. It's uh, very difficult to fight that way, but it's getting everybody involved. Um, two sub points based on that. One is I do think that the smaller um, team in VII was a better idea because it became more meaningful to have each character. And it even made it worthwhile to go through annoying subplots like Yuki stealing all your materia in order to get her, um, which I would not probably have done for someone in Final Fantasy VI. Um, the point you made about the large world and the circumscribed version we get, <coughs> it is interesting how we got what we were asking for, right? Eventually, games got extremely large. And in fact, I think we're now to a point where we almost want them to be prescribed again um, because it's like uh games like Final Fantasy, uh, this is only what I've read, Final Fantasy 14 or 15, they're very, very large and the dungeons can take lots and lots of time, but mostly it's just because they're very, very large. And um, you know, right after this iteration of game, we got to play like Elder Scrolls Morrowind, which was this open world uh, Bethesda, uh, Bethesda game. game. And uh, we it's just, it's very large, and there's a lot in it, and we got to spend as much time in it as we wanted, but I think ultimately with this sort of RPG, we uh, we may have figured that, we may have found out, and I'd be interested to hear an expert perspective on this, we may have figured out that, um, that wanting more is a better experience than actually getting more in terms of one of these worlds. And uh, hopefully that doesn't afflict Final Fantasy 7 remake too much.
0: So I don't really know because I don't I don't play a lot of the new games. Um, the only game I played right, uh, like recently enough to really speak to is um, Delta Rune, which is a you know self-consciously retro style game. It's it's um, uh, only a few hours long, and and uh, in terms of what you can actually do in it, it's like nothing compared to um, the the massive worlds and, and online uh, multiplayer stuff. Um, so I think I yeah I, I agree that there's a certain um, clarity and like enjoyment I guess that just comes uh, from that limitation right um, in those old games I, I don't really have any particular desire to play a a huge sprawling um online game Uh, and i definitely don't have enough time to really do it justice Um, but i think that there's this um sense of uh yeah if you get everything that you want then you are in some way uh by that very like um mastery or domination like you're you are stepping into the, the shoes of the villain there. Um, and it's interesting to think about how the uh, the drive to improve games and make them bigger and make them better um, brings us to, uh, to sort of that realization. Um, and I guess from what I understand, a lot of what happens on the online games is essentially villainous stuff, like people are um, not Particularly heroic all the time, um, so it seems fitting in a way. Um, but yeah, just to kind of come full circle, I guess, um, as you are looking at the things that you know you are most interested in um, with respect to Dante uh, and literature and language, um, is there a particular part or, or aspect of uh, either Final Fantasy six VI or seven that you think? Uh, Kind of is in dialogue with, or um, in some way um, related to uh, some of those poems uh, and and historical sources that you um, have made your your day job.
1: Yeah, well, um, definitely there's a strong degree of intertextuality within it, and conscious as well as unconscious intertextuality. Um, uh, Dante includes. Quite a bit in his own work, and we're still trying to determine everything which he could have included with, as a basis for what he he uh, wrote, which is um, what I was studying right before I got on here. Um, uh, you know, there's this work called the uh, scale Scali uh the Book of the Ladder of Muhammad, which has um, which is Muslim account uh, an Arab Muslim account of uh, Muhammad going through uh, going through a hell and then going up through a paradise and um, there's a lot of work going on in particular on this work to determine whether Dante would have um, ever seen it and thus been influenced by it because if he wasn't if he were influenced by it then that changes in some ways the nature of how we interpret his poem instead of it being sort of extremely dynamic in terms of its structure it is it is uh in some ways less dynamic um there are dynamic elements still to be present but they're going to be different um from what we would have thought had he not had access to the text if he had access to this text and so in the same way um playing these games like final fantasy six and final fantasy seven in the same way that i would i will have read uh dante's uh uh divine comedy before the song of roland it makes me want to go back and read the song of roland so that I can understand um, one of these characters in the, in the Paradiso. Um, and so uh, that, that, that digging into, uh, I, I suppose, finding the roots of the tree that I value in order to value the whole tree more and that process rather than content is what I, I take from um, playing Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VI. Um, I mean, I guess I could also add that I find very interesting the, uh, the aims of these characters to become gods uh, and sort of um, proving the Aristotelian maxim that even if one could become a god, one wouldn't want to. Um, and, uh, and I mean, especially with the world that Kepka creates, again, he's not, it's not three gods. That are in constant conflict which actually might be some extent fun for them or, or at least to our human conception um but uh it's just him and his world is a bummer um and i think you know there's an open question of why wouldn't he have light of judgment to you the entire time and why is there that 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 uh you know that proving grounds waiting for you at his tower and why does he descend from the heavens and what is that whole body thing that you have to go up beforehand um is that his own twisted psyche that you have to witness in order to see the genealogy of this god um is it is it the most like sort of narcissistic thing ever because he literally chooses by his will alone how he represents himself and then he descends from the heavens come on just like just like sephiroth making you spend five minutes watch watching his ultimate attack and all the inscriptions in front of you, um, of you know his brilliant, divine, cosmic, uh, mathematical knowledge. Um, you know how narcissistic, and you know to be fair, Aristotle's notion of a self of the unmoved mover is itself fairly narcissistic. But would a human, having personality and being social by nature or political by nature, even be able to deal with that without going crazy? And in fact. Sephiroth and Kefka are already crazy when they pursue that goal. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it's good, I suppose, to look back and see with antagonists like, like Sephiroth, who I thought had lots of many excellent qualities before his downfall. Um, it's good to see the... Um, well, it's funny, uh, right? Kefka talks about how futile it is fight him and how all all will be destroyed and that's true and yet ultimately it seems like what he and Sephiroth achieved was futile because they got what they wanted but what they wanted was not worth having um and um to be such a god it'd be better to be a dying mortal with some friends i think is what these games teach and i think that's something i've gotten from them too so to mention content so just as final fantasy six and seven can connect together so can the characters between them and so can we talking about the characters and um share some of that principle of connection rather than the principle of uh a disconnection of discernment yeah maybe some of that too
0: well yeah there has to be as you said with the three statues there's some sort of primordial like conflict or or Um, as you bring up with sort of competing drives or ideals of Eros and and Logos. um, Yeah, that tension has to be present, I suppose. Um, But yeah, well, thanks again for jumping in and um, sort of sharing your your take on these games while it was still fresh. And thanks for listening to all of our long discussions of Final Fantasy VI. Um, I was definitely going to follow up on that couple of books and youtubers that you mentioned there um because i knew there was a psychology of zelda i ran across that at some point i haven't read it but i know that it's out there but i didn't know there was one about final fantasy also that's pretty cool uh, very interesting
1: right here
0: yes cool yeah um so uh what are you playing these days what are you gonna play next
1: Well, it's more, what am I thinking about playing every single day and then never actually playing? Because even though I'm pretty good at organizing my time, I always, it's like the things that I put on my stretch list are are the things that I never actually get to. And so I just end up, and in this case happens to be a pleasant leisure thing that has become sort of a a humbug or imp in my life. Uh, But I'm trying to get into... Xeno Gears just because it is one yeah. of those games that I got so far into and then never finished as a young person and I, you have that podcast on Xeno Gears and I think it's just you on that one. Yeah. And um so I'm looking forward to listening to that as well. I think I told you I had listened to that and I do want to listen to that and Xeno Gears like Chrono Trigger like Final Fantasy 7 and 6 comes from that golden age. Yes. Um and has some such rich mythology or mythological symbols and religious imagery and Jungian psychology in it, that I think um, I, I really want to, having now be, become a more studied person than my, what, 12-year-old self, I, um, I'm looking forward to getting more out of the experience this time around, um, uh, seeing what's gold and what's fool's gold.
0: Awesome, yeah, enjoy that. That's quite the experience. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I guess in some sense, um it's fitting that you never you know finished the game back then because what would it even mean to like finish uh, yeah digging into all all of the the whatever it is that's in <laughs> in these games um yeah yeah well cool I, I better i better run uh and check on william down there um but thanks again for joining me here take care.
1: Thank you. I, anytime. And I had a great time. Thank you. Yeah. Happy holidays.